Good morning. Feel free to join us in praise and worship. How y'all doing? Looks good, doesn't it? Like, team's doing really good. It didn't shake or anything. So, um, welcome. Thank you for joining us this morning. Just a couple of announcements. One is after the service, we have fellowship time and Sunday school. We'd love for you to join us for things. Um, second, in your uh, bulletin, there are a couple different announcements. The one I want to point out is there is a fellowship night coming up. Pasta with Minute to Win It games is going to be a lot of fun, uh, but they really need you to sign up because we need to know like how much food and, and how many prizes, that type of thing. So there is a sign up at the top of the stairs on that A-frame uh, bulletin board. Please sign up if you're able to come. I know the fellowship team would be really appreciative of that. So. With that said, let's pray, and we will continue to worship together. Father God, we thank you for today, for a chance to gather in your house. We pray that you will be glorified, that you will be the focus of our attention, the sole focus of our attention, Father. Uh, we thank you for this body and for the chance to gather. Amen. All right, let's, let's continue with uh, bless his holy name and with to God to be the glory. A couple of them you may not have heard in a while. Thank you. 
Him do a solo today. Uh, he's filling in. 
Um, so I was just informed a few minutes ago that my, my PowerPoint for my sermon hadn't loaded onto the network. And so I ran upstairs and resaved it. And right as Lee was starting, uh, we, we loaded it up and it locked up the computers. So, so Lee, you were on your own there for that first song. Thank you for carrying for us. <laughs> That's why nobody was singing along there for a minute. So that was my fault. That's my fault. The guys are recovering that back there. And, uh, you know, it reminds me of, uh, <laughs> I didn't plan this, probably a bad idea, but uh, it reminds me of a um, story I heard. There was a uh, computer contest, a PowerPoint, excuse me, not PowerPoint, but a, a um, word processing contest. And uh, Jesus and Satan were lined up against one another. And, uh, and uh, the, the, it was to see who, who could type the most pages uh, and, uh, and who would win this contest to, uh, to, to do the most uh, word perfect and, uh, and the fastest typing. And so they went along, and, and Satan's just flying through this, this paper. And, and, and he's, he's going 120 words a minute, and, and everybody's watching and just thinking, you know, this is, you know, what's going on here? This is Jesus, the Son of God, and he's just taking his time, and he's flying along, and it's word perfect, but he's way behind. And Satan was getting really confident, and he, uh, he kept on going on. And, and then right as the, they were at the two-minute mark, the, the power went off. And, uh, and everything shut down. And everybody looked around, and what, what in the world's happening here? And power came back up, and, and uh, Jesus continued where he was at. And Satan started looking around. He says, oh, come on, that's not fair. He said, where, where's all my stuff? And everybody looked around, and they said, well, Jesus saves. <laughs> so aren't you thankful that uh, I wasn't planning on telling jokes here today, but, <laughs> just, you know, as we... Are you thankful we're not reliant on technology to worship our God? Uh, it, it's a great tool, and we're thankful for all these guys that, that serve in this way, and, and uh, thankful that we have all these tools. Um, but worship is much bigger than that, isn't it? It's, it's bigger than uh, the details of our service. We, we have a God who is eternal, a God who saves, a God who is, uh, is awesome, who created all things, and he's worthy of our worship. And so as we come together today, uh, it's just, it's wonderful to, to be able to see things happen that you just don't expect in a service, and it's easy to get distracted by those things, but um, we're reminded that our, our God is bigger than all that, and uh, we worship him in truth, we worship him in spirit. Well, you know, we, uh, today we have a, a wonderful opportunity. It, it is important for us to be reminded of God's grace, and uh, it's important for us to be reminded of how God is working in people's lives. Uh, he's performing the miracle of giving new life. Uh, isn't that what happened to you when you came to know Jesus Christ? It's a beautiful thing. He performed a miracle in you, and he made somebody who was dead alive. And so it is, um, it's an encouragement uh, to hear the testimony of others and the testimony of, of God's grace in their life. And uh, I've asked Kurt Bauer if he'd come forward today, and Kurt's just going to share his testimony and uh, the story of God's grace in his life. And so with that, Kurt, I'm just going to turn it right over to you, okay? You bet. Thank you. Hello, church family. Is that pretty loud? Jared, you got me, right? Um, as everyone, if anyone doesn't know me, um, I'm very, very passionate about sharing testimonies. I think whether your testimony, if you think it's big or small, it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, what you're doing is glorifying God. Amen? Yeah. And, and so, uh, you know, I just wanted to be really just an encouragement um, for, for everyone out there that, <coughs> excuse me, 
for everyone out there that doesn't think that they have a strong testimony or just like they get scared because, well, I don't got really a whole lot to, to, to share, right? Or, or my testimony, I don't really have anything exciting. It doesn't really matter. Just, I just want to encourage you that whatever you do, just do it for, in the name of the Lord and do it. Just let, them, let people see your spark, amen? So um, anyways, first and foremost, I just wanted to thank Jeff and uh, the church leadership for giving me an opportunity uh, to share my testimony. I know Todd's not here, but Todd was really influential in, um, you know, being adamant about getting, you know, members of the church con congregation up here to share, you know, their, their testimony. So um, I just wanted to thank everyone for that. And for those, again, who don't know me, uh, my name is Kurt Bauer, and my lovely wife over there is Leslie Bauer. Uh, we've been married a little over four years now, and, and between the two of us, we have uh, four beautiful children. Um, and we also conveniently uh, live across the street behind me. And, and Merv, yes, we still, you know, drive to church every now and then, okay? He, he tells me every Sunday when he sees us. <laughs> um, I'm coming uh, before you today as an ex-alcoholic, uh, an ex-drug addict, and, and a once-divorced individual. Um, quite the credentials, right? Uh, the only reason I'm standing before you today and sharing my testimony is by God's amazing grace and, and purely nothing else, you guys. Um, I became a born-again Christian the night of January 9th, uh, 2018, so roughly five years ago, okay? Uh, leading up to this night, I was living in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, going through a divorce, drinking the hardest I've ever drank in my entire life. Um, I was also abusing prescription medication, and in that time frame, I was fired from my job for insubordination. So uh, to top it all off, my, my soon-to-be ex-wife moved five hours away from my daughter, which forced us to sell our home. So I moved into the basement uh, of a friend's house in order to make ends meet. So that was roughly five years ago before I came to uh, know the Lord. Uh, I, I would say I was easily at the lowest point of my life, relying solely on drugs, alcohol, and the bar scene. Um, anything to keep me from dealing with, with the pain that was rooted uh, in the bottom of my soul. Uh, what a hopeless feeling it was. I eventually found a new job in a decent apartment, but the cycle of drugs and alcohol, it never ceased. I was a full-blown addict, okay? Um, on a not-so-random Tuesday night, I was headed back to my apartment to pour myself a whiskey double, uh, feeling real sorry for myself after my now-wife said she only wanted to be friends. Um, I was going to do what I always did when life got hard. I, I poured me a stiff drink until I couldn't remember what I was sad about. And that's the reality of, of an alcoholic, you guys. Um, so when I went to grab the bottle of whiskey on the top of the fridge, I specifically remember a pause of hesitation. And I don't know why or how, uh, but instead of grabbing the bottle, I turned around and threw my hands up to God in complete despair. I said to myself, all right, God, I'm sick of trying to do things my way. Not sure I can get any lower than this. Let's try it your way. I quickly found my Bible and began reading it, and my whole body was filled with this inner peace. I can't exactly call, recall what I, was, what, what I was reading that night, but all I could really to you, describe to you guys is just that it was, it was the kind of peace that said it's all going to be okay. Sorry. You see, you guys, 
God had to get me to the lowest point in my life where I could do nothing else but turn to him. I tried to control the narrative for, for so long. And all I did was make it worse. Sorry, thanks a lot, you guys, for bearing with me. Uh, after this, uh, it was a, like a brand new life for me. Uh, I was weeping uncontrollably, as you can, you can see, you guys, uh, and reading scripture like my heart was on fire. I usually don't even enjoy reading that much, but it was like the words of scripture were just jumping off the page. Um, I even started wa uh, watching worship musical, uh, music videos on TV, and I loved it. Okay, music videos dedicated to worshiping God. Like, who knew, right? Like, no idea. Um, you know, and that, and that following Friday, um, crazy enough, I, I visited Leslie in Iowa, and the second she opened the door to give me a hug, she absolutely knew what had happened. I was a saved man, a new creation. Uh, we've been together ever since, and now are, are married with two beautiful kids of our own. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. Thank you. So when I look back at my life prior to that night, when I surrendered to God in my apartment, back when I was completely relying on drugs and alcohol, you know what just shocks me the most? I called myself a Christian before that. I called myself a Christian. Truth was, I was never really on God's team. For 30 years, all throughout high school and college, anytime someone would ask me if I believed in God or if I believed that Jesus had died for my sin, I would say, yes, absolutely, praise Jesus, hallelujah, only to go right back into my sinful ways of life, always trying to justify my actions by thinking that I was a good person, so, I, so God would have to let me into heaven. My friends, I'm absolutely positive that if I would have died back then, even though I, I claim to know Jesus, I would have gotten a response that Jesus talks about in Matthew 7, uh, 721. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And that response would, his response would have been, depart from me, for I never knew you. It's scary, it's scary to even say that out loud, you guys. Um, and even just to admit that to you guys, but, it, but it's true. That's the response I know I would have gotten. And looking back, I loved the idea of Jesus. I did. And, and having a Savior, right? I had the head knowledge, but my life didn't follow suit with, with what I was claiming to be. I didn't understand the gospel, okay? Can you believe that? Going to church all throughout my life, and I didn't understand the gospel message. Crazy, right? It's not, though. It's not. There's so many people going through these same motions. That's why I'm up here. I'm up here to say, hey, look at yourself. Look internally, okay? I truly thought I could get to heaven by being a good person and by having my good works outweigh my bad works. It was all about how I could make myself righteous in the eyes of God instead of solely relying on the blood of Jesus for my salvation. It was Jesus plus Kurt's good works that equals salvation. That's how I thought the equation worked, okay? My understanding of God and receiving salvation was all performance-based, okay? It was all about me and what I could accomplish, not what Christ did at the cross at Calvary. My brothers and sisters, we have to understand that no amount of good deeds will get us into heaven. Absolutely zero, okay? Growing up, I thought I was born good, 
and I didn't truly understand the full effect of my sin nature and how we are born actually separated from God, essentially enemies of God. And I know that's hard to hear for, for some of you, but it's, 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 it's true. And, and listen to what Romans 3.10 has to say. It says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understand, no one seeks for God, right? All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You know, how many times do we hear that in church? <laughs> probably, probably not much, right? But it's, it's the truth. We're just filthy sinners. Isaiah 64 and verse 6 also speaks about how our righteous acts are like filthy rags to God. It's heavy. My friends, God's standard of, of good is perfection. All have fallen short, and we need to understand how hopeless we are without the blood of Jesus. God took pleasure saving me that night. He, w- he has allowed the scales to fall off my eyes in order to see his true message of salvation for all. And only because of God, I've been completely sober for the last four years. Thank you. I, li- I like to say now, I'm now drinking that Jesus water that flows up to <laughs> eternal life, right? So uh, instead of a Jesus plus Kurt's good works equals salvation, it's, it's now simply Jesus plus nothing equals everything, you guys. So thank you, everyone, for your time. Thank you. One second. Let's just pray together. Yeah. Let's just uh, take time to just thank God. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for how you've displayed it in church life. Uh, we are uh, amazed at who you are. And uh, each one of us is here today unable to save ourselves. We thank you for Kurt sharing today. Thank you for his um, preparation and thinking these things through, but uh, for giving you the glory and, and just recognizing the incredible work that Jesus Christ has done for him and for each one of us. Uh, Lord, please continue to use Kurt. Bless him. We pray for your, um, your hand upon his life uh, and his ministry and his family. Uh, might you do great things uh, continually through him and through his eyes. Amen. If you're here today and you hear Kurt's testimony of God's grace, maybe you're here today and going, you know, I, I've been saved my whole life, I thought. And maybe your story is something similar to that. Uh, Kurt would love to tell you how you can come to know Jesus. I know Jared will be in the back today after our service if you'd like to t- take some time in prayer. But if you'd like to talk to somebody about how you can know that you have eternal life as well, uh, don't leave this service. Don't leave here today without knowing that, uh, that if you died today, that you would have eternal life. We give God praise. Praise Him. Will you lead us in one last song? Yes. On that note, let's let's stand and, and praise our great God. Blessed be the name.
Sorry, scripture. <laughs> the scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29 through 42. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. <clears throat> the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. <clears throat> and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and following Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. You can be seated. Well, I'm told that the PowerPoint should be working, so we're going to go with our review that we've been doing. You know, that passage gives us just a little bit of a glimpse of the hope that people were looking forward to in the coming of the Messiah. As we come to our end of our series on the Old Testament, uh, this is our last day. Uh, we've been soaring above the forest floor, and we've kind of been taking a bird's eye view over the last 20 weeks of the events that lead up to the birth, the life, the ministry, 
and then the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And I hope that you're better prepared as you read through the Bible to understand how Moses and the prophets point to the Messiah. And it's for that reason that, that these people, men like Peter and John and Andrew, they were, they were looking forward to this one that, that the Old Testament prophecies, the Old Testament promises of God had, had pointed to. And so when Jesus came, uh, they went and when they found him, they went and told their, their family, their friends. But we're going to review uh, the first 15 key words um, one more time before we move into the New Testament next week. If you're here with us for the first time or haven't been for, with us for a while, we've been memorizing some key words together to kind of build a backbone for how to structure the Old Testament and how to put things together so that we have an overall picture of, of how all these individual books and all these individual stories fit into the bigger story that we find in God's Word. And so let's jump right into that. No helps today. We're going to do the whole thing. And so our first eight key words come from volume chapter one. Y'all ready? Here we go. Creation, fall, flood, peace. Very good. That takes us through the first five books of Moses. In volume two, we have three key periods of Israel's early leadership, and that was Joshua. Three kings, good. And then finally with volume three, we've learned four key words. And, uh, or, or, or phrases that cover about the last 500 years of the Old Testament. And we have the divide, 19 and 20, exile, and return. Very good. I've been leaving those words up there, and I think I gave you guys a crutch the last month. So well, good, good job. You guys are getting it. Took them away from you all of a sudden. You weren't expecting that. Well done. Well, with the book of Nehemiah, and uh, we know of his contemporaries, uh, Ezra, and a prophet named Malachi. We reach the end of the Old Testament period. And it's going to be um, another 400 years after these men and after these books of the Bible before the coming of the Messiah. Uh, we oftentimes call these years the 400 years of, of silence, uh, often because um, there were no new prophets, there were no new books of the Bible written during these 400 years. Uh, but these weren't silent years by any means. Um, those, those years are going to witness the, the climax of the, the empire of Persia, the, the fall of Persia, the rise of Greece, uh, Jewish leaders from the family of the Maccabees, um, the rise of Rome, uh, the prophecies of Daniel chapter 11. Hundreds of prophecies in this one chapter that are going to be fulfilled in that 400 years, one after another. And, and it's specific prophecies like so-and-so is going to marry the king of the north and and they're going to give their daughter to the king of the south. And there's all these prophecies of, of empires and, and kingdoms. And you read Daniel chapter 11, and then you see how these things are fulfilled. It gives you a picture of, of the great drama that was unfolding throughout those 400 years while they were waiting for this Messiah. But much of that 400 years was spent waiting for this deliverer, this great prophet who would be like Moses. And Jews had a concept of the promises that God had made all the way back from the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant that, that Jeremiah foretold. And there were many who were anticipating this Messiah. In Greek, we call him the Christ. But there's going to be a twist in the story, isn't there? He's going to come, and it's not going to be what they expected in the way that they expected. God is going to do a great work, but the way that he brings it about was beyond their wildest dreams. And so that leads us today to today. Today we, we come to the end of our flyover of the Old Testament, and with that I'd like us to zoom in 
And, and we're going to see God's work once again in the events of one man's life. We're going to look at one chapter from the life of Nehemiah and see how God was at work in him. This man named Nehemiah, if you want to turn to the book by his name, if you're looking for it, it's First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah. Remember, Ezra and Nehemiah was actually one book in the Jewish Old Testament. Just needed two scrolls because it was that big. And so turn with me, and uh, let's pray. Let's ask our God for his blessing. Lord God, we, um, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for how you have unfolded your grace throughout the history of mankind. You've shown us over and over and over again how uh, in your story you are accomplishing something that would bring us back to you, back into relationship, back into fellowship with you. And what we destroyed when we rebelled against you in the garden, uh, you are restoring. And you're doing it in a way that uh, we will look at back on uh, thousands of years from now, millions of years from now, when we've been with you in eternity for a billion years, we'll look back on this and, and go, you, you couldn't have done it more marvelously. And so thank you for how you've unfolded this before our eyes and given us the privilege of, of being able to read these stories of individuals Thank you for showing us how you put this together in a way that, that it all points to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. As we come to the end of our Old Testament study, our Old Testament flyover, Lord, I just pray that you would continue to teach us, continue to help us to understand better uh, how you are going about these things, to understand your sovereignty and, and the amazing plan that you've been accomplishing throughout human history. A and then to witness how you are doing that in our lives as well how our story intersects with yours, and when we are at the end of our rope, you show us your grace. You show us your mercy that comes through Jesus Christ. And so help us get a glimpse of that today as we come to the life of Nehemiah. Amen. Well, there were two old geezers living in the backwoods. Rufus and Clarence. They lived on opposite sides of the river, and they hated each other. Every morning, just after sunup, Rufus and Clarence would go down to the respective sides of the river, and they'd yell at each other. Rufus, Clarence would shout, you better thank your lucky stars that I can't swim, or I'd swim this river and I'd whoop you. Clarence, Rufus would, Rufus would holler back, you better thank your lucky stars that I can't swim, or I'd come over that river and I'd whoop you. Every morning, every day, for 20 years. One day, the Army Corps of Engineers came along and built a bridge. But the insults kept on coming every morning, every day, another five years. And finally, Mrs. Mr. Rufus's wife had had enough. Rufus? She squalored one day, I can't take no more. Every day for 25 years, you've been threatening to whoop Clarence. Well, there's the bridge, have at it. Rufus thought for a moment, chewed his bottom lip for another moment, said, woman, snapped his suspenders into place, says, I'm going to go whoop Clarence. He walked out the door, down to the river, along the riverbank. He came to the bridge. He stepped up onto the bridge. He walked about halfway over the bridge. 
And then he turned tail and ran screaming back to the house, slammed the door, bolted the windows. He grabbed his shotgun and he dove under the bed. Rufus, cried the mistress, I thought you were going to whoop Clarence. And he says, I was, woman, I was. What incarnation is the matter? He says, well, whispered, whispered terror-stricken Rufus. He said, I walked halfway over the bridge and I saw a sign. This said, Clarence, 13 feet, 6 inches. He ain't never looked that big from the other side of the river. And I suppose, I know, I'll hear it from my wife later on, really, trust me. I suppose you could say that Rufus and Clarence were men who lacked vision. Like many people who are satisfied with the mediocre things of life, the traditions of life, the rut that they're stuck in that they've been doing for 25 years, that just doesn't make any sense. You see, they had a little, uh, they had little understanding of their history. They had little understanding of the potentials for their condition or of a plan of action that would maximize their resources for changing the status quo. Too often, you and I are like Rufus and Clarence, just going on from day to day, satisfied with the mediocre. So how's your vision for that? How well do you understand where God has brought you? What the present state of your walk with Jesus looks like? What possibilities do you see for God working in your future? As we turn to the book of Nehemiah today, we find a leader who was a visionary. He was a man who had a vision for what God could do, and God laid it on his heart. He was a man who understood what Israel's past was. He understood their sin. He understood God's work. He saw the present circumstances that their people were in, but he also envisioned the possibilities of what God had in store for the future of his people. Let's review just a little bit of where we're at in in history as we come to this time of the Old Testament. Nehemiah is kind of in the middle of the Old Testament as far as where your Bible is, but chronologically, we're at the end of the Old Testament period. This is is the very end of of all these books we've been looking at, and along with Ezra and Malachi, uh, these were the last books that took place. A while back in the year 605 B.C., we saw that the, the the Babylonian king had come in, and for 2 Kings 25, Nebuchadnezzar, we saw, conquered the land. And that's when Daniel and his friends were taken captive. Several years later, the king of Judah rebels, and Nebuchadnezzar again comes back. He lays siege to Jerusalem. Uh, in 586, the people, they never thought it would happen because the temple was there. They had the temple. Jerusalem was safe from these foreign invaders, and, and nothing could happen to Jerusalem because they had the temple. But God warned them and said, I'm going to take you into exile. I'm going to take you into captivity, and this is going to be destroyed because you've walked away from me, your God. And sure enough, in 586, the temple was razed to the grounds. Nebuchadnezzar came through the walls. The walls were torn down, and the rest of the people were deported, including the king. And everyone was deported except for those that had already been slaughtered. They left just a small remnant of the poorest of the poor in the land. Years go by. It's the year 538 B.C., and God did exactly what he had promised. He moved in the heart of King Cyrus. We saw the first king of the Medo-Persian Empire. And he, he took this king, and he ended the captivity. 
the people returned back under, first under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel. And they rebuilt the temple. And the second return took place under another man named Ezra, who was a scribe and a teacher of the law. This was in 458, uh, so after the books of events of Esther. Uh, but about 80 years after that first group had returned. And so now a second group comes back under the leadership of Ezra. And at the opening of the book of Nehemiah, however, we find ourselves another 12 years later after that. And in the first chapter, we're introduced to a man named Nehemiah. Uh, he lives in the capital of Persia. And the scene opens with a visit from his relatives who've just come back from a visit to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah inquires as, as to how the people are doing. How, how is Jerusalem going? How, how is the reconstruction process going? What do you think of the temple? What are, what are the walls like? How, how are things developing? What he's informed of distresses him. Uh, the people are living in open shame. They've been there for about a century now, and, and Jerusalem is uninhabited. People are, are leaving the city to go to small villages because there's no wall to give them protection. Upon learning that God's people are living in open shame, that they're surviving, that they're living the status quo, but they're under distress, with its walls down, Jerusalem has no defense against invaders. There was no place to make a home. And many of the citizens had just completely moved out. Temple worship, this temple that they had built that had been completed decades earlier, it couldn't be maintained. And so morale had sunk to rock bottom. And Nehemiah was deeply disturbed. And as you read the first chapter, you see that, that he, he wept, he fasted, and we're told that he, if you do the math, he, he prayed for four months. For four months, chapter one goes on. And so the Jews had returned to the land of promise, but they were not living like the people of God's promise. And so like Daniel and like Ezra, Nehemiah, he lays hold of the truths that were taught throughout the Old Testament. And in his prayer, he proclaims God's truth. He, 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 he claims, Lord, this is what you've said about us. This is what you've done for us. And, and he reviews the things that we find throughout the Old Testament, and he, and he lays hold of those truths, and he prays, as you see in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1, he says, They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now you might ask, who, who's this man that he's talking about? What's he talking about, this man? Nehemiah is about ready to walk into the presence of the king of Persia, Artaxerxes I, and ask for a favor. And then the chapter closes with this very important detail. He says, now I was cupbearer to the king. It's not a throwaway line. You read through that, he's not just telling you what his job was. Uh, you see, the cupbearer, the cupbearer was the, the king's right-hand man. Not only was he a person that, who tasted the king's food and wine first to make sure that it wasn't poisoned, but, but the cupbearer would have been uh, the, one of the closest people associated to the king. He was one of his closest confidants. Uh, if you're king of a mighty empire with many, many provinces, and uh, you know that food is going to be brought to you day after day, who do you want bringing your food? Who do you want serving you your wine? Uh, if there's conspiracies all around, you, you want a trusted person that, that's going to control 
access to you. And, and that was Nehemiah. This is one of the most trusted positions in all of the Persian Empire. And so Nehemiah would have had frequent access to the throne. And we learned that he had a plan. He had a request that he was going to bring to King Artaxerxes. And so let's watch this plan, this great vision of Nehemiah that unfolds throughout chapter 2. And I'd, I'd like for you to note what you and I can learn about being people who have a vision for what God can accomplish in our lives. First, we read in verse 1, it says, In the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, tw- excuse me, twentieth year of Artaxerxes, King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. That, that's a key detail right there. Uh, he's been serving for a long time, and he had never been sad before in the presence of King Artaxerxes. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Now, there's a reason that Artaxerxes was afraid. If you serve the king of of a vast empire, and and you were one of his most trusted confidants, and and you were in control of providing access to the king, what kind of man does the king want in that job? Somebody they can trust, right? Somebody that's not going to scheme against him. Somebody that's happy. That likes his job. You ever work in a job that you just didn't enjoy? Your boss have a lot of confidence in you that you're going to stick around? A lot of confidence in the work that you're going to do? Ever have one of those employees? A- and so here's Nehemiah, and he's, it says he was sad, and the king notices it. And, and there's one easy solution that Artaxerxes had to, to address a problem to make sure that he had trusted advisors that would remain happy with their jobs. Take his head off. That's commonly what would happen. It'd just say, you know what, Nehemiah, you guys take him out back. Let's go find somebody new and let's replace him. And so Nehemiah has a reason to be afraid. Uh, The the king notices his sadness. Verse 3 goes on and says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Kind of important words to tell him, right? (laughs) I'm still with you, man. (laughs) Nothing's changed. I'm here. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Before we discover Nehemiah's great vision for rebuilding Jerusalem, we need to discover that God directs his people through prayer. Not a cliche. Not something we just say because we're here in church on Sunday morning. You know, we're supposed to say that, right? God answers prayer. But he does. And the seeds of vision are planted through prayer. Notice how, how we see that this in Nehemiah's example, both here, but also through all of chapter 1. And Nehemiah responded in prayer to, to real needs. We, all, we often see prayer as this strange ritual that you know, we, we have to go through. These, we need eloquent phrases. We need great oration. But my friends, what is prayer? It's talking to God. I've often told you about my, my uh, struggles with plumbing. And I've shared with you how prayer is a lot like plumbing, isn't it? Yeah, some of you are shaking your head. Some of you have helped me with plumbing. And you know how horrible I am at it. Um, right, Russ? <laughs> you can say yes. It's all right. Uh, I, I, what's that? It was a bad location. 
but it was also a bad plumber, so I was thankful for some help. Um, you know, uh, plumbing, I, I just don't understand it. I don't get it. You know, you got all these joints and, and pipes and this and that, and, and, and somehow that, that plumbing in my house connects and has water that it brings water into my house, and, and that comes through pipes, and, and it, it goes somewhere under the ground. I have no idea how that works. That connects to a system in the city of Welton. I love that I live in the town of DeWitt, or work in the town of DeWitt, but I live in the city of Welton, population 70. Um, sorry, I'm just, stuff's coming from nowhere today. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how it all works. I, I look at plumbing and it just, it baffles me. And, and somehow that water comes from lakes and rivers and rain and, but I I know this, that when I turn on the faucet, the water comes out, doesn't it? And, and prayer is much like that. I, I have no idea how it all works. I, I, I just don't. I, I, sovereignty of God, free will of man, am I changing the mind of God? Has God planned these things from before time began? Yes, all that. And, and yet he listens to me. He wants me to pray. He wants me to come before him and, and make requests and to deal with the real situations of life and to pour out my heart before his throne. And, and somehow in all of that and th that I can't explain, I, I, I know that when I turn on the faucet, the water comes out. So here's Nehemiah, a man who is devoted to prayer. He's been praying for four months. A real conversation with a real person, his God, who, who listens to you as he listens to Nehemiah, like you've never been listened to before. We're shown in Scripture that he's attentive to his children. And so, like Nehemiah, we should be people who talk with our God about life and about real needs. Nehemiah prayed persistently. Again, do the math between chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 1. And four months have gone by. Not only was he making requests, but he was also confessing sin during that time. Nehemiah recognized sin for what it is. While our God is a God who listens to his people, there's one great circumstance where the Bible tells us that he will not listen to us, and that's when we're walking in sin, when we refuse to confess our sin before him. We must be people who are sensitive to the sin in our lives and who are quick to agree with God about the disobedience that happens within us. Nehemiah, however, was also a man who remembered the promises of God. He, he didn't just see a horrible situation and plead blindly. Rather, he was a man who, who knew God's word, he knew God's promises, and he knew God's declared truth. My friends, by faith, he believed God, and his prayers were formed, and it took root in that soil of the truth that God had presented to him from his word. And I believe prayer is like that seed. Uh, you can pull that seed out, you can isolate it, you can drop it in a, a cup of water. Just watch it. Very often you'll see this, this miracle happen. The husk cracks open and, and something alive begins to reach out, looking for something to root in. But you take that same seed and you plant it in the right soil. And watch something wonderful take root and bear fruit. 
prayer and God's word are like that. They belong together. When your prayers arise from your time that is spent in the scripture, something wonderful takes root and bears fruit. And so vision takes form. Nehemiah requested what only God can give. But then God directed Nehemiah through this persistent prayer, and God directed Nehemiah through during these times of prayer. And if we want to be people like Nehemiah, people of vision, people that aren't just living day to day, the status quo, going from one thing to the next, just hoping that life will give us something interesting. If you want to be a person who has vision for what God can accomplish in your life, that God can accomplish in your family, that God can accomplish in, in your personal ministry as well as, as in your church, then, then you and I must be people who are persistent and frequently on our knees before the God of heaven. But notice that that, that vision, it also sees opportunity. Uh, Nehemiah, Nehemiah, sometimes, excuse me, sometimes opportunity comes at, at normal times. Uh, here, here's Nehemiah, as we've seen him already, and, and, and though he's afraid for his life, He's in the middle of, of just doing normal life. He's doing his job. And, and sometimes those opportunities are going to come at times like that. You're just going about changing diapers, making phone calls, doing stuff that, that your boss tells you to do. And, and opportunity arises. Because you've been in prayer and because you've been in God's word, you start seeing those opportunities. Maybe it's an opportunity to share the gospel with a coworker. And, and you never noticed it before because you weren't praying about them. You weren't praying for them. You weren't spending time in God's Word. But now you're, you're saturating your life in, in prayer and God's Word, and all of a sudden you start seeing the opportunities that are around you in everyday normal life. And so in this opportunity, it came in the midst of a normal day, albeit you know, Nehemiah wasn't exactly in a normal profession that everybody else was in. But for him, this was just day-to-day stuff. And sometimes, though, opportunity is going to arrive at your doorstep when you're going through the events of everyday life. But if, if you're a man or, or, or a woman who has been spending your time in God's Word and spending time in prayer, then, then you, you'll be ready to see that opportunity. But sometimes that opportunity often comes at inconvenient times. Listen to how Nehemiah answers the king in verses 5 through 6. Things are changing. He said, I, I said to the king, if it pleases the king... And if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting, queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Whew, he survives. He makes it. He makes it. But notice with Nehemiah that, that he didn't just see the opportunity but his vision looked beyond his own limits. Let's read on, verses 7 through 8. He said, I, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through it until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the king of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. You see, seeing beyond, it allows us to act boldly. Because Nehemiah's life had been saturated in prayer and obviously in the study of God's word, he saw beyond his own circumstances 
He saw beyond the ordinary things of life something else that God could do, something that was beyond his own limitations. Now, how easy would it have been for Nehemiah to just pray and say, oh, God, please help those people over there? Never been to Jerusalem. Here it's supposed to be a wonderful place, but it's not. Lord, I pray for them. Please save them. Please send someone. God, please help those people living back there to stop living in fear. God, I have a position of great influence, and so thank you for letting me live in the palace. Help me be a good cheerleader for my people. He could have prayed like that, couldn't he? But he didn't. No, first he says, send me. To Artaxerxes, send me. Let, let me be the one to rebuild it. He's the one with a vision for what could happen, and so he asks. But then he doesn't stop there, does he? He doesn't just say, let me go back to Jerusalem so I can do the work. Oh, his next request is bold. He boldly asks the king for resources. He asks for letters of passage. Uh, the, the, the rulers of the, 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 the land beyond the river would have been basically from the Euphrates all the way to the borders of Israel. He says, give me safe passage all the way there and then let them cut down trees for me so that I can, uh, so that I can build a fortress. Is that something you want to ask like a king to help a, a foreign province? I'm going to build a fortress for the temple. He's even going to ask for a house to live in. Vision, when empowered by the Holy Spirit, enables us to act boldly because it enables us to see the hand of God. It's interesting. Uh, this is the same phrase we saw back in Ezra 7. Do you remember that? Twice it says, the hand of God was upon Ezra because of what he had said in his heart. The good hand of God was on Ezra. It says the second time. Here in Nehemiah, the good hand of his God was on me, he says. Nehemiah saw beyond his own limitations because he was aware of God's working in his life and what God had said on his heart. But that oftentimes attracts attention, doesn't it? Things are changing. There are those who oppose or are opposed to God's work, and when the good hand of God is upon a person, it draws the gaze of those who are offended by God's grace and who are troubled by God's power. Nehemiah Nehemiah was no exception to this. In verses 9 through 10, we're introduced to an obstacle for rebuilding of the walls. These guys are going to come into play later on as you read through the book of Nehemiah. But it says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, the, the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. That's an important detail. It's a little bit of foreshadowing because those guys are going to come back into play later on in Nehemiah. We won't get to that today, but I encourage you to read through that. But like Sanballat and Tobiah, there are going to be people in your life who are displeased when you seek the welfare of God's people. But we're not finished learning our lesson from the work of Nehemiah. You see, he wasn't satisfied with the status quo. He wasn't satisfied with just giving in to the pressure of those around him. He didn't shrink when people opposed God's plan and God's good. He didn't stop with the status quo even when progress had been made. It'd be easy at this point to say, cool, look at what God did. That's awesome. Let's go. Let's go rebuild it. 
and that was the end of his vision. Letters from the king, a train of cargo for the work was not the end of the project. And, and so it leads me to just another question. H- how satisfied are we with the mediocre? How's your vision today? How well do you understand where God has brought you, the present state of your, what it, your walk with Jesus looks like? What possibilities do you see for God working in your future? Nehemiah's vision looked ahead. Look at verses 11 through 16. He says, So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. And then I rose in the night, and I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Just a couple observations here. You know, oftentimes we can get really excited about what God puts on our heart, right? You ever been there? And you get so excited about it, and then you go tell somebody, and they're like, huh, okay. Then just kind of, and nothing ever happens from it because it just kind of fizzles and other people switch it. Oftentimes we get really excited about what we envision for God's people. God, God puts something into your heart and you expect that others are going to take hold of that and they're going to be just as excited as you are about it. We have this idea that you're going to open your mouth and magic rainbows are going to appear and their crowds are going to go, ooh, ah, it doesn't happen that way usually, does it? So what can we learn about Nehemiah's approach to implementing this great vision to rebuild Jerusalem? He, he arrives, but then he doesn't go talking about his great plan as soon as he, his entourage gets there. He, he takes three whole days. He takes a tour of the city. At night, he's in, it's in secret. And just notice that the, the, pl- the planning ahead, it, it takes time. And planning ahead is, is not rash. I would imagine that Nehemiah has continued in prayer throughout this, throughout these days, but he was also thinking, and he was looking ahead to what needed to be done. And so that finally leads us to verses 17 through 20, where we see that Nehemiah's vision is finally shared with others. The last few verses conclude and says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins when its gates, with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us arise and rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant of Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. My friends, know this. 
some will act on what God is doing. Some will act against what God is doing. Nehemiah was a leader who first found himself before the throne of God's grace. And, and it was there that seeds of, of vision were planted through prayer and obviously time in his, God's word. But, it, but he didn't just stop by praying. He looked for and he saw opportunity. He saw beyond his own limits and he continued to look ahead even after God's good hand had already been upon him. And then he shared his vision with others. And then his vision was seen by others. Helen Keller once said, worse than being blind would be to be able to see, but have no vision. It's over this next few chapters that God's people, not just Nehemiah, they're going to act on what God has led them to do. Not just what God led Nehemiah to do, but what God led them to do. They're going to rebuild the walls in a record amount of time. The people are going to come together. They're gonna, we're told they're going to hold they're going to hold brick in one hand and mortar and a sword in the other. Uh, they were defending. They, they had a plan. They, they went about things, and it's a remarkable project that unfolds throughout this book. Ezra is going to come back into the story. He's going to teach the people. I, I love that story here in Nehemiah because Ezra preaches to the people, and guess what? For a quarter of the day, he sat, and they all stood up. Maybe not. I guess I didn't let that vision sink in and do that right. Now, Ezra comes back in and teaches the people. Nehemiah is going to return to Persia, and then he's going to come back again. He's going to serve as the next governor over Judah. Jerusalem is rebuilt, and by the time of Jesus and his disciples, a few hundred years later, they're going to look on and wonder. Remember the story in Matthew 24, the disciples are up on the Mount of Olives, and they're looking out over Jerusalem. It's a city of rubble still, right? Beautiful. Amazing. They look at the temple. They say, Jesus, check it out. Look at, look at the temple over there. Isn't it beautiful? And Jesus had a message uh, for them that they didn't enjoy in a, a time of destruction again. But I, but I want you to know that that happens almost 500 years later. Jerusalem is going to stand for over 500 years after Nehemiah rebuilds it. And, and, and though there's a, still a future and still things that are, are coming after Jesus' day and, and after our day, God still has a plan for Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is rebuilt, and by the time of Jesus and his disciples, they look up on this wonderful city and this, this great city with a temple that stood on God's mountain. And, and my friends, Nehemiah's vision came to pass, and that city stood for another 500 years. In the Bible, there are some who had visions. I mean, like Joseph and Daniel. We've looked at them, right? They're real visions. I mean, they saw things. God used them in remarkable ways. But something else. There are some who were visionaries, men who had great hopes for the future, but never lived past their own imagination. There are some who had no vision. They just lived from day to day moment to moment, existing to survive the day and live on to the next, shouting from one side of the river to the other, I'm going to whoop you. I'm afraid that we easily suffer from the myopia of Alice in Wonderland. She said, would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? That depends a good deal on what 
where you want to get to, said the cat. I don't much care where, I said Alice. Then it doesn't matter which way you go. So long as I get somewhere, Alice added as an afterthought. He said, oh, you're sure to do that. If only you walk long enough. God has not called us to be such short-sighted individuals who just live from day to day, going nowhere. Right? That's not God's plan for you. That's not God's plan for our church. It's not God's plan for your family. But God has called us to be people with vision. And we see that Nehemiah was such a man. Not because he was some great hero that had fought battles and led armies. Some great politician from the start but because he was a man who prayed for what God would do. He saw what God was doing, and then he was able to lead others who also saw what God had laid on Nehemiah's heart. Jesus has also called us to a grand vision. We're going to start into the New Testament next week, and we're going to start the unfolding of, of the Son of God who comes down to earth, and he actually lives among us. He doesn't just pitch his tent among us. He actually lives among us and takes on flesh. And the vision that Jesus painted with what the people needed, beyond what Nehemiah could provide, Jesus is going to show us a way that is beyond anything we've seen in the Old Testament. It's all been pointing to this. It all comes down to who Jesus is and what he did. And he had a grand vision that is being played out today for the, by the church. By, before he ascended into heaven, he left his people with a great command love one another and a great commission to go into all the world make disciples and that's why at Dwitty Free we're we're passionate about knowing Christ and making him known by helping others what connect with Christ grow in faith love our God my friends we are in the business of introducing people to Jesus not not just a business your business, the business of your life. You are here to introduce people to Jesus, to grow in faith, and to love our God. We tell people about Jesus, we teach them about Jesus, and we worship Jesus. It's why we're here. There there is no room for complacency in that. There's no room for the status quo. There's no room for sliding across the finish line. So are we praying? Are we, are we praying about our role in this great vision that Jesus laid out for us? Are you praying about how God would use you and your family in this remarkable vision for the world? Are you saturating that prayer in the soil of God's word? And then from there, where our sight is clear because our vision is rooted in God himself, let us look for opportunity. Let us look beyond our own limits and look ahead to the good work that lays before us. By his grace, our God will be exalted and, and eastern Iowa will be a changed region. That's my, my prayer for us. It's my prayer for this area that we live in. Like Ephesians, excuse me, Acts 19, 20 said, regarding the Ephesians. It's my prayer that this would be a changed region due to the influence of the Spirit of God expressed through the lives of people who are connected to Jesus and and growing in faith. By His grace, may the word of the Lord continue to increase
prevail mightily. Pray with me. Father, we are. Once again, we thank you for men like Nehemiah. We thank you for these stories, true history, real stories of people's lives as they lived them before you. We thank you for men like Nehemiah who had vision for not only who you are, but what you might do through us. Thank you that he was a man of prayer, a man that knew your word, and a man that saw the opportunities that you gave to him. Lord God, we just pray that you would help us to be men and women like Nehemiah, not just as a church, but in our individual lives, living with passion as we follow Jesus Christ, living with a purpose, telling people about Jesus, teaching about Jesus, and worshiping Jesus. And might you be glorified in us as Jesus is magnified. our Lord in song. I want to thank everyone for coming this morning thank you for watching online and for all our guests and members uh, we just want to praise the name of Jesus this morning and as we close in prayer we learned a lot about prayer this morning we learned a lot about salvation this morning so uh, after after service we have fellowship time we also have Sunday school classes for all ages let us pray Most gracious Heavenly Father, as we learn about praying for months and months for your will to be done, as we pray our simple prayers, we many times think we need to do it before we pray about it. And we just praise you, Lord, that 
you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That we can hear about salvation this morning, that we can hear about Nehemiah and his plans with you in mind. Father, let us go from here this morning knowing the, the power of prayer and the power of salvation through your son Jesus. And it's his name we pray. Amen.